Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 716 for the 23rd of October, 2020. This week, some people like to replace their computer with a new model around the end of the year. And because the end of the year is approaching, this might be a good time to think about how to save some money on the deal. In short circuits, ad blocker plugins for browsers can be handy, but there's another option that uses a file that dates all the way back to the first networked computers. Ebook organizer and reader Calibra has been updated to version 5. Although relatively weak as a reader, Calibra is the best organizer you'll find. In spare parts, only on the website, is Microsoft thinking about switching to Linux? There's been some speculation about that lately. Looking for a really cheap computer? There's the Compute Stick from Intel, but be sure to consider its limitations before buying. And 20 years ago, Adobe was beginning a concerted effort to develop applications for home users, not just graphics professionals. That effort seems to have paid off. Are you thinking about buying a new computer? It's something a lot of people do around the end of the year, so it might be in your thoughts. There are good ways to save money. And there are some bad ways to save money. The best way to save money is to buy smart. The best way to waste money? Buy cheap. Let's consider the options. Buying cheap is almost always bad, no matter what you're purchasing. Economists explain how poor people spend more for shoes than rich people. A rich person buys an expensive pair of shoes that are well-made and may well last for five years or more. The poor person can't afford to buy high-quality shoes, so the shoes will have to be replaced once or twice a year. In the end, buying cheap costs more. The same can be true of computers. Cheap computers are assembled from low-end components, so the CPU will probably be underpowered, the manufacturer will have skimped on memory, and the disk drive will doubtless be a slow mechanical drive. If you have enough money to buy the the top-of-the-line model with all of the latest and most powerful components, don't. Cheap certainly isn't good, but neither is buying the computer with the fastest CPU, the most RAM, and a huge solid-state disk drive. Start by thinking about what you really need. Do you need that fastest CPU? How much RAM is required by the applications you use most frequently? How much disk storage will you need? Unless you spend a lot of time editing photos and videos, paying extra for a super-fast CPU and GPU will be wasted. CPU is, of course, the central processing unit, but the GPU, the graphics processing unit, has become much more powerful in recent years. As for disk space, desktop computers can often be fitted with more than one disk drive, so a fast but relatively small boot drive for the operating system and applications can be coupled with a slower mechanical drive for data storage. Notebook computers are rapidly replacing desktop systems, and most have no room for additional hard drives, 
but attaching an external hard drive is an easy way to add storage. So how much space do you really need? I have to confess that my primary system has far more disk space than I will probably ever need. There's a 500 gigabyte internal solid state drive for the operating system and applications, four external drives in an Orico 4-bay USB case, and one additional USB drive that used to be a network-attached device, now directly attached to my computer. The objective was to have sufficient disk space for digital photos and digital videos, so there is approximately 14 terabytes of attached storage. That has turned out to be far, far more than needed, but it does provide for some redundancy. Although I would probably use smaller drives if I had to do it again, I'm really not distressed by having the extra space. RAM is relatively inexpensive too, but buying more than you need is a cost with little discernible benefit. Because I use several applications that need a great deal of memory, I have 64 gigabytes of RAM installed. You'll find computers for sale with just 4 gigabytes of RAM. Even for basic use, 4 gigabytes is not enough. 8 or 16 gigabytes of RAM is sufficient for most users, but let the applications that you need to run be your guide. One of my long-ago co-workers always purchased a new computer by selecting the model with the second fastest CPU, and there's quite a bit of logic there. A computer with the fastest CPU will probably cost 20 to 25% more than the one with the second fastest CPU, and yet the CPU's performance itself will be less than 5% better. The lower-cost system will still perform well for three to five years, and maybe a lot longer. My primary computer is now more than four years old, but I have another computer that's a year or two older than that, and one that's still in use after 10 years. I certainly wouldn't want to use that decade-old machine for any high-end work, but it's more than adequate for its current use. Another way you might be able to save money involves specifying less memory than you need and a mechanical hard drive instead of a solid-state drive. Now, this little trick only works with some computers and only if you are comfortable opening the case. Apple, in particular, charges absurdly high prices for disk enhancements and memory. The desktop systems could be opened, and the user could swap one disk with another, and also add memory. That is much more difficult with Apple's current desktop machines, and not possible at all with its notebook computers. Apple uses screws that are unique to Apple products. They don't want anybody but Apple's technicians to get inside. But Apple isn't alone. Microsoft and most of the companies that manufacture tablet computers are no better because opening the cases requires specialized tools, and many of the components are held in place with glue, not screws. But if you have a more standard notebook computer that uses covers held in place with screws to provide access to the disk bay and the memory compartment, you can perform your own upgrades. For example, purchase a computer with a minimum amount of memory and add memory or replace the existing memory components with modules from a company like Crucial. And while you have the computer case open, swap out the hard drive. If the computer came with a one terabyte mechanical drive, you can remove it and put it in a $10 case. This creates a handy portable USB drive. 
then install a solid-state drive to improve the computer's performance. But there's one more consideration. Do you really need a new computer? There are online merchants who specialize in used computers. Some of the used computers come from corporations that routinely replace systems after three years. It's important to find a seller that you trust and that will accept returns if the computer you buy doesn't meet your expectations. But there is still one more possibility. Most manufacturers offer refurbished computers. This includes manufacturers such as Apple, Dell, Lenovo, and HP. Buying a refurbished unit can reduce the cost by 30%. You'll generally get a shorter warranty, one year instead of two or three, but the refurbished units have been examined by technicians and repaired if they needed repairs, so they meet all operational specifications. And that is an important difference between new and used computers, the fact that the refurbished computers have been examined by a technician. Most manufacturer-sourced refurbished units come with the manufacturer's standard one-year limited warranty, and they have a brief period during which the computer may be returned. Retailers such as Best Buy, Target, Walmart, Amazon, Staples, eBay, and others also offer refurbished computers, but be sure to read the warranty and the return conditions, just in case. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. circuits. Anybody who uses more than one browser and wants to eliminate ads should consider an alternative to the various ad removers offered as browser plugins. Uh, plugins need to be installed and updated on every computer you use. Wouldn't it be great to have an option that worked for every application that uses the internet? Windows, Mac OS, and Linux users have such a tool. It's the hosts file. On a Windows machine, you'll find it in C, Windows, System32, Drivers, etc. Mac OS users will find the hosts file in Private, etc. Hosts, and Linux users will find it in etc. Hosts. It's a file that dates back to the earliest days of personal computers, to a time before domain name servers existed. Each computer needed to list the IP addresses of resources that the user wanted to connect to. The hosts file is a plain text file. It is the first place that the computer looks before it tries to find the IP address of an internet resource by using the domain name service server provided by your ISP or third party. If the site's name, techbiter.com, for example, is found there, there's no need to query a name server. If you open the hosts file on your computer, you'll see that techbiter.com is not there, and yet your computer found the site. That's because the browser queries a name server when no entry is found in the hosts file. The name server told the browser that the address is 67.222.41.89. If you want to check this out, type 67.222.41.89 in your browser's address bar, and you'll be taken right to techbiter.com. But I have another domain on that same IP address, blin.com. 
if you type in 67.222.41.89, you'll get TechBiter, not Blinn. So if your browser asks for Blinn.com, it will be sent to 67.222.41.89. The primary domain associated with that IP address is TechBiter, but the name server will return the same IP address for Blinn.com, and then the name needs to be resolved when the browser's request reaches Bluehost. That's where the site is hosted. The host's file is useful on corporate networks to address situations where aliases are needed for some resources. That's not today's topic. We'll just consider how to use the host's file to eliminate ads, trackers, and other junk. If you edit the host's file, be sure to do it with a plain text editor such as Notepad, Notepad++, or UltraEdit on a Windows computer, Atom Brackets or BBEdit on Macs, and Sublime Vim or Nano on Linux systems. Visual Studio Code by Microsoft also runs on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux machines. Also, you'll need to have enhanced permissions to edit the file, so Windows users will need to run the text editor as administrator, and Linux or Mac OS users will need to assert super user status. The host file is loaded when the computer starts and any line in the file that begins with a hash sign is ignored. The hash sign is also known as the number sign, the octothorpe, and sometimes even the tic-tac-toe symbol. Any host's file that hasn't been modified is likely to have only a couple of active lines. They are used to establish the loopback interface that's used during the boot process. They also define 127.0.0.1 as localhost or home. This is essential, so these two lines should never be changed. Any changes you want to make should be entered below them. Each domain that you want to block needs to be on its own line using a format like 127.0.0.1, space or tab, techbiter.com, space or tab, the hash sign and an optional comment. Or instead of 127.0.0.1, you can use 0.0.0.0. The IP address is first, followed by the domain name without anything like HTTP, HTTPS, or www. And finally, an optional comment preceded by the hash sign. Any non-routable address could be used, and the two addresses in my example are not equivalent. The localhost address will send the request to localhost, while the IP address with four zeros will simply fail and go nowhere. Non-routable means the address can be used only on local networks, not on the Internet. Most people are familiar with addresses that begin with 192.168, each of the final two numbers can have any value from 0 to 255, and this block of addresses is often used for home and small business networks. It contains 65,536 possible addresses. Other non-routable addresses begin with 172. The second number can have any value from 16 to 31. The third and fourth numbers can have any value from 0 to 255. That's a block of 1,048,576 addresses. And the final block of non-routable addresses is the largest. The first number is 10. The second, third, and fourth numbers can have any value 0 to 255. That's a big block, 16,777,216 possible addresses. Don't bother to memorize that. It will not be on the final, and it's easy enough to find when you need it. So theoretically, you have a choice of nearly 18 million addresses, but just stick with one of the two suggested addresses. 
One replacement host's file uses the 4.0's IP address instead of 127.0.0.1. This is done to resolve a performance issue on Windows machines that occurred starting with Windows 8.1. Some antivirus applications, though, have a problem with the 4.0's address. So if that happens to you, you'd need to perform a global search and replace to use the local host address. There are some addresses you'll want to eliminate immediately, ones like doubleclick.net, ed.doubleclick.net, adsense.google.com. You can visit Netify to find a list of advertising servers, starting with Google. You'll find a link to Netify on the TechBiter Worldwide website. However, there is a much easier way to get the basics. Visit WinHelp2002 on the MVP's website and download the current hosts file. If you examine the file, you'll see that some lines have been disabled with a hash sign at the front of the line. When you see a disabled line, there may be a comment that explains why it has been disabled. Usually, it's because some commonly used service needs to contact that particular address. The MVP's host file is huge, nearly 11,000 lines. If you haven't made any changes to your original host's file, just replacing it with the new host's file is a good option. The file is updated regularly, and replacing the copy on your computer with the new version occasionally is a good idea. Updates include new ad servers and new malicious sites. It also disables entries that have been found problematic for valid sites and applications. And if you'd like to be notified when the file has been updated, you can join the email notification list, and that's on Blogspot. There's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website also. After making changes to the host's file, you do need to restart the system because the file is loaded into memory at boot time. It includes entries for most major parasites, hijackers, adware, and spyware locations. That means that in addition to keeping your browser from reaching those sites, the updated host's file also keeps any spyware or malware that has been loaded on your computer from being able to phone home with your information. Windows users can perform the installation the easy way by running a batch file as administrator. The batch file renames the existing hosts file hosts.mvp and installs the new hosts file. So take a look at it. This might be just what you need. the advantages physical books offer, there is one big disadvantage, the fact that they are physical books. They have weight. They occupy space. But the act of holding a book is special. Books have aromas, from the luxurious scent of an expensive bound volume to the tang of a paperback. No matter how fast the processor in your ebook reader, it is still faster to flip to a bookmarked page in a printed book. Now, before I wax too poetic about physical books, I should admit that most of the books I read these days are e-books, so I guess that means I have to stop waxing. It's easy to carry around hundreds of books on a small portable device. You can read an e-book anywhere, at least until the device's battery is depleted. Physical books have no battery to run down, but they can't be read in the dark. So there's not a right choice or a wrong choice. If you have a lot of ebooks in various formats, keeping track of them can be a challenge. I have about 400 ebooks, and I have the free open source Calibra ebook viewer. Although I use it only occasionally as a viewer, it's a great organizer. Calibra runs on computers, but not on portable devices, 
and my preference for reading is an iPad. Although Calibra doesn't run on phones or tablets, it is possible to connect one of those devices to Calibra running on a Windows, Mac OS, or Linux computer, and you can do that to read books and manage the library. When I need to find a quotation or a reference from an ebook, Calibra is my preferred tool because its search function is so powerful. Calibra has been upgraded to version 5. This adds some features, but it also creates a potential problem. The developers had been using Python 3, but that version of the language has been deprecated, and the new Calibra uses Python 4. As a result, some of the old plugins, ones that are no longer being maintained, don't work anymore. For most users, that's probably not a big deal. And there's a lot to be said for Calibra as an organizer, because it can convert books from one format to another. The search features are powerful, and that's why I consider it the best option when I need to find something in a book. The reader is becoming more powerful, too. A remarkable number of settings are available, and the new version adds a highlighting option. The search dialog can be placed at the top of the page, on the left, or it can be hidden. The table of contents can also be shown or hidden. So if you're a fan of ebooks, Calibra is a great addition to any other application you use to read them. You'll find the download for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux computers on the Calibra website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You don't need Calibra or any other ebook reader for spare parts. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Is Microsoft thinking about switching to Linux? There's been some speculation about that lately. Looking for a really cheap computer? There's the Compute Stick from Intel, but be sure to consider its limitations before buying. And 20 years ago, Adobe was just beginning a concerted effort to develop applications for home users, not just graphics professionals. The effort seems to have paid off. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.